Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Supriya. I'm an alcoholic. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor improves any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Felicia B. will read the steps. I'm Felicia. I'm an alcoholic. Twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Joel M. will read the traditions. My name is Joel, and I am an alcoholic. The Twelve Traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. Four, 
Each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Six, an AA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the AA name to any related facility or outside enterprise. These problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, AA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the AA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. The format of this meeting is two 10-minute speakers followed by our information break and then our main speaker who will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10-minute speaker is Todd A. Hi, I'm Todd. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I'd like to uh, thank Chris for asking me to speak. And uh, um, uh, it's always a pleasure to speak at an AA meeting, especially my home group. And this is my home group, and my sponsor is Jeff. And uh, I'm working on nine, living in 10, 11, and 12. And my sobriety date is July 20th, 2001. So what was it like? Uh, well, I was born, uh, you know, unfortunately, an only child. And, uh, oh no. And, uh, you know, I never had to want for anything. You know, my parents gave me pretty much everything that I wanted. And, uh, even the things that I wanted, they gave me even though I probably didn't deserve them. And, uh, that sort of, uh, was to characterize, uh, my life, uh, from then on forward. Uh, what I wanted, I got. If I couldn't get it, I would take it. And, uh, even as a kid, you know, I would go play with friends and, you know, they had like a collection of silver dollars. And you know what? I wanted one, you know. And so I would steal one, you know. And then they'd come down to the house and say, you know, my son's missing a silver dollar. Did you steal it? Uh, no. I have no idea, you know. And then, of course, after that, it was like, so why'd you do it? And I said, I don't know. And that became my mantra for years. It was like, why did you do it? I don't know, you know. Um, and it wasn't uh, until later on that I started to realize I know why. You know, I wanted attention. I wanted nothing but attention. You know, I had everything I could want, so the one thing I wanted more of was attention because I couldn't get enough of it. And if I couldn't get it, then I would do things that would get it for me. You know, I cut the uh, the draperies with scissors. I set the backyard on fire. You know. Uh, you know, I, I can't tell you the, the silly things that I used to do, but, 
you know, and this is before I started drinking. So, I mean, <laughs> if this gives you any indication of where things went afterwards, you know, I got to tell you, you know, it, it didn't get pretty. Um, I did, I did start drinking um, sometime, uh, you know, with my parents. Um, you know, my first drink, I don't remember. You know, my first drunk, I don't remember. Uh, I know I remembered liking the effect. Uh, that was something that I definitely did like. And um, going through life um, in the early stages, you know, I went to boarding schools where drinking was not a factor, um, you know, and it just didn't really come on the scene or I didn't really start dabbling in it uh, until, I guess, my junior year in high school. Um, and that was the year that uh, my boarding school went co-ed. And after that junior year, they asked that I not return. Um, it was a polite way of saying, you're out. Um, and, uh, you know, it was basically, you know, for the sole reason that um, uh, I did not want to do what I was told. Um, you know, uh, th my report cards constantly said, if only he would apply himself. Uh, I guess some of you people can understand that. Um, and so, you know, I, I thought, well, you know, I, I'm applying myself as diligently as I can, so, you know, what, I, what you're seeing is the best you're going to get from me, you know, and it wasn't enough. Um, so, um, you know, alcohol became sort of the, uh, the catalyst for me at that time to sort of break out of this little shell that I had been in, this sort of um, quiet little person that I had been, this meek little mouse. And, um, you know, alcohol became, you know, a very important part of my uh, last two years. I actually had to repeat my junior year in high school, so I was a five-year high school veteran, which, you know, applying to colleges didn't go over so well. Um, but um, I did change schools, and uh, I had a little calendar where I, where I documented uh, my daily usage. And... Uh, it was it was every day, um, including weekends, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I would always seem to have an excuse to drink, and um, you know how I managed to do it. I don't know. Um, it, I did not suffer from the effects. I was able to bounce back very easily. Uh, there were no serious repercussions. You know there was you know you know rumors. There was you know uh, how does one say? Uh, uh, reputation, you know, for being the wild one. And um, anyway, um, moving along. Uh, after I went, I went to college for a year because it was suggested that it was probably a good thing for me to go and experience it. Um, I, I really had no desire to go. I had already lost the desire to work uh, at doing anything that um, um, you know anyone told me to do. And so I got to the point where you know. Uh, drinking just became a daily part of my life. Um, fast forward to uh, the end, um, you know, drinking had taken me down the path to where I could not uh, go a day without a drink. And, um, you know, coming home at night uh, when I said I was only going to go out for a quick one um, was not enough and uh, I would stay out all night. And uh, uh, on one of the last nights, out, my last debauch, um, I was locked out of the house by my wife. And uh, I spent the night in the stairwell. And uh, if that wasn't a wake-up call, then I don't know what was. So I went to a, um, uh, a psychiatrist to whom I had been to before for 
um, another substance uh, some time before, and he said clearly abstinence for a period of time was not enough. You need to engage in abstinence for good. And I said, you must be kidding. Uh, how am I going to live without it? And so, you know, even in the intake, I was sitting there with my bag clutched to my chest, and, uh, you know, the, the, the guy was looking at me, and he says, you're going to drink tonight, aren't you? And I, and I looked at him, and I said, me? No. You know, meanwhile, I had little miniatures in my bag, and I could not wait to get out of there so I could go, and I could drink my little miniatures on the way to the bus to come home. And, um, but I did listen. You know, it was the start of my ability to start listening. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I was told in that uh, rehab to, uh, the outpatient rehab, to go to meetings. Uh, because once you're done here, you're going to have to go and do this on your own, and you're not going to be here forever. And I said, why not? Um, I liked it there. Uh, I could identify with the people there. And uh, I started to uh, get a, an understanding of exactly what this disease is. You know, um, when I put a drink into my body, I had no ability to control what would happen afterwards. And so what I really needed was a program to keep me away from that first drink. And um, so for the first three and a half years of my sobriety, I, I thought I was doing the right thing. You know, I was going to meetings. I had stopped drinking. Everything was okay, right? Wrong. You know, I had no program. Uh, I thought throwing myself into service, you know, by taking that little line out of the big book that says, the more we throw ourselves into service, we take ourselves out of ourselves. And, and, I, and I thought, okay, well, if I do, you know, a certain amount of service, then I will be okay. And the truth of the matter was, I was not okay because I was not being of any service to anybody. I was not even being of any service to myself. I was constantly trying to do only for me. It was all about me, still, in sobriety, it was all about me. I wanted for me. I didn't care what you got, I wanted out of it what I could get, and it was all I could do to get for me. I hit another bottom in sobriety, and I had, um, I kept running into somebody uh, from this group, and uh, I, I approached him, I said, you know, um, would you be my sponsor? And uh, he looked at me and said, you know, listen, maybe we should talk about it first. And uh, I said, okay. And so we met and he said, okay, tell me what the first, second, and third steps mean to you. And so I did. And he says, okay, uh, tomorrow, Monday, bring your big book. We'll start reading the big book. And I was like, yeah, I aced it. And so a couple of weeks later, I asked him, I said, you know, so, so how did I do? And he says, well, the bottom line is, you know, you really showed me that you know absolutely nothing about this program. <laughs> and it was perfect because, you know, I, I, was, I was at a point where I had, to, I had no idea what to do. But I, I was willing and I, I got to a point where I had to do something because it was not getting better. It was only getting worse. And um, so uh, with, with some great direction uh, and some guidance, uh, I was able to start putting aside... Um, myself and get out of myself and start working at um, finding out what was driving me. And that's where I came to this conclusion that this is, this is what I was after. I was always all about me. And so as a result of having now done these steps that are laid out in the big book, which I had never done before, you know, I'd done them haphazardly through step meetings, uh, I'm able to now sponsor people, which is something that I would never have imagined being capable of or ever wanting to do. And today I do it because I, I actually enjoy it. You know, I enjoy working with others, you know, and um, thank you to all my sponsees for, for being there and for entrusting me with uh, helping them out because um, 
You know, without, without this program, I would be nowhere. Without great sponsorship, I would not be willing to face the truth, A, about myself or about how I fit into the world around me. And, um, you know, as Jack Nicholson said, you can't handle the truth. So thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Our second 10-minute speaker is Sally C. Thank you, Sean. Thanks, Todd. Hi, I'm Sally, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and I'm very excited to be here. My sobriety date is April 23rd, 2005. Uh, my home group is Atlanta Group, and my sponsor is Janine from 79th Street Workshop. Um, I always like to start when I speak saying that I drank for over 35 years. It's a long, long time. That's longer than like most of you were alive that are in this room. And today I don't drink. I've gone 22 months without a drink. It's a miracle. I am so grateful to be standing here tonight. You have no idea, or I'm sure you do. <laughs> Um, if you came here tonight and you're new, um, you're in a safe, wonderful, loving environment. Um, if you are a little scared by all the happy people, don't be. It's just that the solution and the hope and the love for this disease lies in this room. And, um, and it's yours. It's yours. You're here. Um, I began drinking, well, I grew up in a small middle small middle class town, middle class family, not a lot of liquor around. Um, I was an obsessed little child. From the very beginning, I knew what I wanted to do. By third grade, I said, there I was in the middle of nowhere, I said, I'm going to dance in New York. And everyone, everyone kind of looked at me and said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I knew I had to work hard to get there. I needed scholarships uh, to go to college. And I found that I needed to be the best at everything. I needed to be the best cheerleader, the best choreographer, the best actress, um, the best academically. Um, I just had to be the best at everything. And I didn't really think about it. It was just the way I was. I was very, however, awkward socially, very awkward socially, always was, um, because no matter what was on the outside and no matter how many accolades I got, I was a very nervous, scared individual, um, very shy on the inside. And it took a lot of energy to keep up all the things I constantly did. And my first drink happened from the love of my mother, actually. I used to get stomach cramps in high school, and um, she would give me a shot of whiskey. Yeah, I can't even believe it, actually. Um, with that first shot came warmth, came a mother's love, came the ability to stay home from school and not have to get straight A's that day. And, um, and I felt better. The pain was gone. And I didn't know it at the time, of course. I didn't know what it meant. And it didn't become a habit. I did not drink in high school. I was too busy being the best at everything else. I didn't have time to drink. But I kind of wondered what it was like, you know? I saw all the cool kids, and I thought, what does it feel like to be like that? Because by the time I was in high school, I was a really daunting individual. 
I, I loved to do everything that I did, but people would look at me and, and kind of be scared to talk to me. And being shy inside, I was scared to talk to them, and the whole thing came down to everybody said, well, you know, she must be kind of stuck up doing this and doing that and all that stuff. And um, that's just the way it was in high school. And I vowed when I left high school that um, I was going to change that. And I was very lucky. I got a full-ride scholarship to a great school, and I stopped studying as much and started dancing and acting and singing more, which was what I wanted to do. And I found liquor. I uh, found my first real boyfriend, who eventually I married, and I'm still married to 30 years later, <laughs> which is amazing. Um, but I found liquor. And all of a sudden, I was not the dork. I was the party girl. And I could drink, and I could be funny, and I could drink out, I could outdrink all the jocks, and all the social anxiety was gone. And I was a dance major, so people didn't know, have to know, that I was smart. And I had dates, and it was all really wonderful. And I was, had to be the best drinker, of course, so I could outdrink everyone. Um, I have no idea why, but I could. And at first, it was just fine. And as I began to drink more and more regularly, I noticed there were hangovers. I never threw up from drinking. And I never missed a class from drinking. I, um, I just continued to, <laughs> God, that goes fast, fast forward. I just continued to drink and suddenly noticed that I was having worse hangovers. And I would drink when I was happy, drink when I was sad, drink when I was in between, reward drink all the time. I was a very functional al alcoholic. I went on to New York to have a successful career, to dance on Broadway, and to do all these wonderful things. But I also toured in the business. And what do you do in Pocatello, Idaho, when you finish the show at 11 o'clock? You drink. And so drinking became more and more, um, I'm going to finish this and I'm going to drink. I'm going to finish that. I'm going to drink. When I had a problem, I drank. And I could never seem to get enough. When everyone else quit, I was still going. I was one more drink and one more cigarette, baby. And that's the way I lived. But I was able to function. And that, I wish I hadn't been able to function, but I was able to function. And as I, I got married in my 20s, had a wonderful career, went on. My 30s were about raising children, had two wonderful children and a wonderful husband who also traveled a lot. He was gone about six months a year. And um, that took its toll, whether I've, I've looked back now and I realize that. I had a wonderful support group of people, but all my friends drank. And so there's a lot of reward drinking when you're raising kids. Oh, I made it through the day. I'll have a drink. Well, I can't quite make it through the day, so I'll have a drink at noon. And um, that's kind of the way it goes. <laughs> but, um, but still, in my 30s, I loved. I was there with a hands-on mom. I loved it. I took time off from auditioning and working, and I loved it. But you know what? My story is about um, denial. Um, I denied the times I blacked out. I deny the times I started not to remember. It's about progression. I don't know when the line happened. I don't know when I crossed that line, when I didn't, uh, didn't want to drink. I needed to drink. I really needed it, and it was an awful feeling. 
I started living what we all talk about all the time, the kind of double life where I was on the outside appearing to be okay, and on the inside I was not okay. I was still shy. I was pushed into all these situations where I was socializing. I was uncomfortable. I couldn't socialize without a drink. I couldn't go to dinner without a drink. Every occasion was about the drink. It was sad, but, but that's the way it was. And by the time I got to my 40s, things were getting really bad. I had no longer small children. I had teenagers. People were dying in my family. Um, there was a lot of disease. Um, I wasn't working as much. I was getting older. And every time any thoughts of any of those things came into my life, I drank. I didn't drink in bars. I drank at home. My life was just going from this to this. I was living between my bed and my bathroom. People were constantly telling me that I was drinking too much, and I was in denial. And I had a family. I had a lot of love around me. I had a career, wonderful friends. If this disease was about how much you loved or how many people were there to hold you up, I wouldn't be here. It's a disease. I drank because I'm an alcoholic. I drank too much because I'm an alcoholic. I drank irresponsibly. I put my kids to bed. I thought I did my job. And I would get completely wasted and fall asleep, never to be woken up. I was spared the yets. I didn't crash cars. I didn't kill anyone. My, there were no emergencies I couldn't handle. But I was losing myself. I was losing my soul. I was doing less. I was going out less with my husband. He was leaving me home more. Um, for obvious reasons, I couldn't be trusted, and I ended up in rehab one minute. <laughs> my husband plunged me into rehab. I went, where's the little girl who could do everything the best? What am I doing here? How did I end up here? You know what? I didn't want to stop drinking. I didn't want to stop drinking, but I wanted to stop the pain. I had lost my soul. When I went in, I couldn't shower. I couldn't walk the dog. I was completely not functioning. I couldn't make a sentence. I was an anxious mess. But I found angels along the way. And you'll find angels, too. I found a wonderful roommate in rehab, a wonderful roommate who held me up. She connected me with a sponsor who held me up. I found the rooms of AA, and I said, you know what? Doing it my way didn't work. It doesn't work. I'm going to be dead if I don't listen. And I started to listen. And I listened all the way through rehab. I was an anxious, depressed mess. But I just kept coming. Everyone told me, if you just keep coming, you'll get this. By osmosis, I got it. I'm here. I'm happy. I'm joyous. I'm free. And this works. And I wish I had more time. <laughs> I love you all. Thank you so much. Our main speaker tonight is Bobby. My name is Bobby, an alcoholic. My home group is the underground group. We meet at the Old Pine Community Center, 4th of Lombard in South Philadelphia. Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays at 8 o'clock. If you're in the neighborhood, please stop by. We'd love to have you. I have a sobriety date of June 2nd, 1988. I'd like to thank the group for again inviting me up. I've been here a couple times in the past. 
And uh, so I will tell you in a general way what my life was like as an active alcoholic, what happened to me, and what my life is like today as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was born and raised in a very blue-collar, very ethnic neighborhood in Philadelphia. I got seven brothers and sisters. We had no booze all in the house. My father did not drink, and my mother could not drink, besides being pregnant for almost 10 years. <laughs> well, seriously. There are eight of us within a ten and a half year span. I have a sister who's 11 months older than me, and I am 11 months older than my next sister. It's Irish octuplets. So, so besides uh, being pregnant all those years, my mother also suffered from a history of mental illness and abuse, prescription medication, and because my father did not drink, he was smart enough not to have any booze in the house. His parents, my grandparents, his parents lived around the corner from us, and that's where all the family functions were held. Their basement was finished as a bar, the graduations, the christenings, and that's where I had my very first drink. I loved going there. Uh, you know, my father, uh, he, my father was from, uh, he had ten brothers and sisters. My mother was from a smaller family. She was one of nine. But, but we always gathered at my grandparents, and every other weekend there seemed to be a party. I mean, a cousin, somebody was having a birthday. And I just loved the music. I loved everything about the excitement there. And I loved my grandparents. Uh, my grandparents were immigrants, uh, so my friends from the neighborhood used to make fun of them because they used to speak kind of funny. But I think if you come to the neighborhood, everyone, we're all on the same page. But I loved my grandparents, and I loved the parties there, and that's where I had my first drink. I did not get drunk the first time I drank. I was just a kid. I remember what it was. I was running around the basement bar they had, and I was polishing off. It was the half-empties. It was Valentine beer. And I remember that because I remember going up to Connie Mac Stadium with my father, and Valentine used to sponsor the Phillies, and he had the, you know, that scoreboard in right center field. And I, it was the attention that I got from my uncles. I mean, I may have gotten a slight buzz, but it was just, you know, just a little beer I was drinking. But it was my uncles who pointed at me and said, look at him, look at Bobby. And that's what I always craved. I never felt a part of. And that's pretty tough to do when you got ten people living in a small three-bedroom row home, but I never felt a part of. And that would be true in early, into early recovery. My drinking kind of took off in high school. Most of the kids in the neighborhood went to the local diocesan high school. My parents had sent me to a private Jesuit high school in North Philadelphia. And right away I felt kind of different. Because most of the kids who went to the school from affluent families from the suburbs. Just me and a couple of the dirt balls from the neighborhood. We went there. And, and we had a reputation because we used to walk to school, you know. And so these kids, they were getting dropped off by their parents in their luxury automobiles, and me and the guys from the neighborhood were inside robbing their lockers. And, and I knew that was wrong. I knew that by the values instilled in me by my parents and by the nuns as a kid, but we did it anyway, you know. And uh, we did stupid things. We, like, we sold football pools, and if you won, we didn't pay off. And, uh, I mean, what were you going to do? You know, and we thought we were like little gangsters, you know. And I remember my freshman year at the prep. It was, it was September. It was football season. There was an away game. We rented a bus. There was drinking. There was fighting. There was police activity. It was really a lot of fun. And I remember our first day back to school, we all had to go sit at the seminarian. And he had us lined up outside the office. He was about 10 of us outside his office. They were all upperclassmen except me and the kid from the neighborhood. We're the only two freshmen. And uh, he came right up to us. He said, you guys here like two weeks already. What's, and you're getting this jackpot. What's that about? And I just shrugged my shoulders. I said, you know, Father, it's just one of those things. And what it was, it would set the tone for the next number of years. Uh, I didn't play football, so I didn't hang out with those kids. I did somewhat uh, well academically, but I didn't hang out with the AP kids. I was there about a week and a half. I found out who the nitwits were, and that's who I hung out with. And that would be the story of my life, you know. Uh, I, I did not uh, distinguish myself. I didn't make the dean's list, but I didn't, do, uh, I didn't do badly either. You know, I wasn't failing, but I wasn't doing well. 
the bare minimum effort required to get by. That's all I wanted to do. I didn't want any attention. Good attention, bad attention. I didn't even want you to focus on me, you know? I remember uh, my uh, my junior year at the prep. Uh, the school sits at uh, 17th and Gerard in North Philadelphia, and three blocks away is the subway. And a lot of kids, at the end of the day, the kids from the suburbs, they would wait on 17th Street for the trolley car to take them to three blocks to catch the subway. Like, they were scared to walk the three blocks. Well, two blocks away on the corner of 15th and Gerard, there was a bar called the Ebony Showcase Lounge. And when I was a junior, I was a regular at the Ebony. Now, I went there for a couple different reasons. I mean, they had cold beer and they had, you know, the dancers. But a lot of times, me and the kids from the neighborhood would go out to this, we would throw out to the street and sit in the bar to show these guys from the suburbs how tough we were. I'm not a tough guy. I never was. And I can now tell you every time I walked out that street or sat in that bar, I was terrified. But I did a lot of things, you know, I was like your entertainment committee, and I did a lot of things in my gut that I was uncomfortable doing, but the need for me to be accepted by you outweighed anything else, and I didn't want to disappoint you. And one of my nicknames was Crazy Coil, and I would do these things, and I was terrified, but I didn't let anybody know, you know. And it's funny because uh, I'm at that time, I'm what, I'm 17, I probably look like I'm 12. I, I'm kind of dressed like I am now, gray slacks, blazer, you know. And as you could tell by the name of the establishment, they knew we weren't from the neighborhood. But they figured if we were crazy enough to go in and order beers, they would serve us. It was just nuts, you know. When it came time to graduate from the prep, I really had no desire to further my education. Uh, so I, I was in a dilemma, you know. I, 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 all my uncles, my dad's brothers, and three of my mom's brothers all went to Annapolis. And I knew that was an opportunity for me. But I was also smart enough, if I, if I, that would be a bad move for me. Because I, 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 I just smart enough, I knew that would be a bad move. But I knew I couldn't stay home because there would be hell to catch. And I didn't like catching any hell. And my options were limited. I'm 17. I'm, you know, I have no skills. I have no money. I can't get an apartment. Like, my options were limited. So what I did do, I enlisted. I enlisted in the Air Force. That really wasn't a bright move. Because back in... <laughs> Because the military wasn't popular in the 70s, a lot of people weren't going, and, uh, but I enlisted. And when my, uh, I went through my training, and when I, my training got done, I uh, got sent overseas for 13 months. And that's where my drinking really took off. I never messed around with any other substances. I never even smoked a joint, you know. I had a lot of guys from my neighborhood who had gone over and got whacked on certain things. And I actually had a fear. I had a fear of other substances. But I had a good drinking problem before I went in. I was there a couple months, and several good friends of mine got killed. And I didn't know how to handle that. Because in my family, we didn't talk about nothing. It was all surface stuff, you know. And once you moved out of the house, whether you went away to school, you went, went to get married, you were no longer privy to the secrets of the family. And that's not a shot at my folks. I mean, that's just the way it was. If you lived in the house, everything stayed within the walls of the house. And once you moved out, you know, that was it. You didn't know anything. So I didn't know how to handle this. My friend's getting killed. But I know that booze numbed the pain, and I drank to numb the pain. And the same thing in the service. I did not distinguish myself, but I didn't get any jackpots. I gave the bare minimum effort required to get by. I would do my job, and, and that would be it, you know. When my tour was up, I came home. I enrolled in school. I went to St. Joe's College, and I wound up taking a couple civil service exams. And I remember it's, uh, it was the end of the spring semester at St. Joe's. And St. Joe's back then, small, it's still a small school, but when I was there, I don't think we had more than three, 4,000 kids there. And I remember at the end of the semester, uh, a kid from the neighborhood called me up. He said, Bobby, the Phillies are playing tomorrow. One of those businessman specials, you know, like one of those weekday afternoon games. And they say, would you want to go to the game? I said, sure. Because the same thing in school. Like the classes back then, I don't think there was more than 20 of us in the class. And I wasn't making the dean's list, but I wasn't failing out. But I said, sure, I'll go. They're not going to miss me because I wasn't participating. So me and four other guys from the neighborhood, the next day we went to the Phillies game. The Phillies have since moved. They're playing the Vet Stadium in South Philadelphia. It's, a, it's the end of the semester, so it's an unusually warm day in May. 
and we're sitting at the top of the 700 level drinking that cheap watered-down beer, and the sun's beating down on me, and I told one of the guys I was with, I said, you know what, I said, I'm going to run down in the field and meet one of the players. <laughs> and they kind of shrugged me off because another nickname I had was Bullshit Bob. Like, I'm going to tell people, like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I did that. I didn't do nothing. I made stories up. I could never even get off the bar store. You know, that's what I did. I just told, I, I talked to you. I should have started off once upon a time. I just told stories all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So I had worked my way down. To, at the vet at that time, they used to have these picnic areas in left and right center field. And I worked my way down to the picnic area, and I jumped over the fence, and I ran out in the field. And uh, the San Diego Padres were in town, and Dave Winfield was the right fielder for the Padres. And I went out, and I shook his hand. I said, hi, Dave. How you doing? And he looked at me, he said, brother, what are you doing out here? And from behind him, and he's a pretty big dude, but from behind him, I saw the guards coming. I said, Dave, i got to go now. <laughs> so I start running towards the infield. I want to slide into second base. But as the closer I got to the infield, there was guards coming from the third base side, and I knew I couldn't do that. You know, if I slid in the, I was, you know, if I slid in the second, I'd get caught. So I start walking towards first base. And uh, I'm as close to the guard as Sally and I are right now, and I'm walking to give myself up. At the last second, I deep the guy, and I ran out in the outfield. Now I'm running around like a screwball. It seems like about 10 minutes, but it's probably like closer to three, two or three minutes, right? The place is going nuts. I mean, I'm just out of the service. I'm in good shape. I'm joking and jiving. But you know what? I got nowhere to go. <laughs> the fence is 12 feet high. I'm drunk. I'm out of breath. I'm about to get sick. I finally stopped running. Up on the school board, they put Mr. Excitement. They couldn't catch me. I was nuts. <laughs> I wait in center field for them to catch me. I got nowhere to go, right? They take me off the field. I got a standing ovation from 37,000 people. The place is going nuts. You know? Swear to God. Tug McGraw was in the bullpen for the Phillies. They were taking me up to the bullpen, and Tug McGraw gave me, like, thumbs up. You know? Now, I knew I was going to get a beating from these guards because, because I made them look so stupid. They could have beat on me all day long. I didn't care because you know why? I could drink for free for at least a week with this story. Now, I knew that I was going to be a legend in the neighborhood. Now, this would be the type of story that I'd make up, bullshit Bob, you know. But I had them four guys from the neighborhood. I knew by the time I got out of jail, those guys would be in the neighborhood talking about me. And I would go into the bar like the conquering hero and could drink for free. I actually pictured this just as I was about to get beaten. Yeah. Just... Just when that was about to happen, a Philadelphia police lieutenant showed up. He came down to me. He said, what's the matter with you? He said, are you drunk? Are you high? I said, no, I'm just happy. Just happy to be here. He said, well, you better get your happy ass out of the stadium. So not only did he save me from getting beaten, but he saved me from getting arrested. And that was important because one of them civil service exams kind of panned out. And about three months later, I got hired by the Philadelphia Police Department. They was hiring anybody back then. Right? My friend Steve, yeah. They was hiring anybody. I got hired. Our mayor at the time was a guy by the name of Frank Rizzo. Frank was a former cop and a police commissioner, and we were 8,300 strong. We could do whatever the hell we wanted to do. He loved us, and it was a great gig. It really was. I remember when we got sworn in, he said, fellas, in your hand, you're holding the ticket to the best show in town. Now, I'm not even old enough to drink. The drinking age in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has always been 21. The drinking agent in Jersey at that time was 18. And where I lived in Philly, I'd be across the bridge in Jersey quicker than I could be other parts of Philadelphia. But once I got on the job, I no longer needed to do that, you know. I, I spent the first part of my... I need to tell... That story I talk about running on the field, I tell that story for a couple of different reasons. One, it's a 
It's the only funny story I got. You know, I wasn't an athlete. I wasn't a lover. I wasn't a funny guy. I was none of that stuff. I was a lying, thieving, stinking, falling down, violent drunk. And if I hung around you, you had something I wanted. I used and abused everybody I came in contact with. I was a creep. Secondly, it's a true story. I get them four guys from the neighborhood. They're, they're all still alive. They can back me up, you know. And thirdly, but more importantly, I was a blackout drinker from the very first start. I remember I would come up to the corner the next day and guys would tell me what I did the night before and a few hours later I'd be retelling those stories like I remembered them myself. I was a blackout drinker from the very first start, just drinking beer. I remember when I eventually got sober, I was in the VA hospital, the doctor came up to me and said, listen, do you ever have any blackouts? I said, no. I must have answered too quickly for him. He said, do you know what they are? I said, no. <laughs> Once he described them to me, I said, all the time. That's why I thought you had a good load. If you didn't remember it, that was good. Uh, you know, and I, that's how I found out what blackouts were all the time. You know, I spent the first part of my career working in North Philadelphia where I would see the ravages of alcoholism and drug addiction day in, day out. And at the end of the tour, I would get with guys in the squad and drink because, you know, I, you know that's what we did. You, you drank to numb the pain. And there were some things I, I saw in the job that bothered me, but I didn't want to tell my coworkers that because I didn't want to be thought less than. I wanted to be one of the boys to the point where I engaged in behaviors in my gut I knew was wrong. I knew that by the values instilled on me, by my folks, by the nuns, by the Jesuits. Everyone knew, I knew, but I did it anyway because the need for me to be accepted by you outweighed anything else. Whatever values or ethics or anything I had were compromised early, they just went out the window, you know? And the handwriting was on the wall. I was at work one day and uh, my immediate supervisor pulled me off to the side. He said, you know what, kid? He said, you're smart, you're gonna go places but that booze is going to mess you up, in one ear and out the other. I'm at a family function one time, and my uncle Jimmy was there, and he was a boss on the job, and uh, he pulled me off to the side, Bobby, I need to talk to you. He said, I'm hearing stories about you. You're going to get yourself in a jackpot. You better take it easy. In one ear and out the other. Several years later, when I got sober, on two separate occasions, I ran into my uncle and that supervisor in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I realized that at that point that they were trying to help me. And I remember talking to my Uncle Jimmy. He said, Jimmy, he said, how come you didn't tell me? You know, and he gave me one of them old-timer smiles. He said, Bobby, you just weren't ready yet. Which just goes to show you that all the drinking and all the nonsense that went with it were necessary for, for me to hit my bottom. I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous. I made my first meeting in 1979. I don't tell people I went out because I really never came in, but I'll tell you what happened. I showed up at work one day, and one of the guys I worked with, he was just out of his mind nuts. And on our job, we had a counseling unit. And uh, so I, I showed up at work. He said, listen, this guy, he's going to be detailed up there for the day. I said, okay. And uh, it was a little house that sat in the park. And I come down this driveway, and there was a guy sitting on the porch. His name was Eddie, Eddie M. And Eddie and I, we had kind of worked out of the same building, but we did different work. And I saw Eddie, and I said, listen, I'm dropping this guy off. He's detailed here for the day. I'll be back at 4 o'clock to pick him up. He looked me dead in the eye. I said, kid, do you want to come in? I said, no, I don't. I was insulted that he even asked me. Because I knew what alcoholics were. Alcoholics were you older guys, you married guys, you guys are the three heads. I mean, alcoholics were these poor people I was dealing with day in, day out. I couldn't be an alcoholic. I was a beer drinker, you know. The only time I drank hard liquor was like on St. Patty's Day or New Year's Day or payday. But I was a beer drinker. <laughs> so it was funny because once I got sober, when I wanted to make my first outside meetings, Eddie was in the meetings. Eddie's still sober. And, and, he came, and when I came in, he said, so kid, you finally came around. And again, just to show you that, that all the nonsense that went, went, went with it were necessary for me to hit my bottom. 
I was 24 years old. I shot and killed a 15-year-old, uh, 15-year-old kid in the line of work in a terrible situation. I couldn't be avoided. I, yeah, I used that as an excuse to crawl in a bottle, and that's what I did for my next three years. There was a lot of help offered it to me. I didn't want nothing to do with it. I wound up getting sober when I was 27. Drinking took me to a lot of my nevers, and one of my nevers was the use of other substances. I wound up got moved on my job, and I was put in a position. I was drinking. My judgment was impaired. I was put in a position where I thought I needed to do other substances. That's what I did. My drug history is very short. It lasted 17 months. Caused me and a lot of people. I worked with a lot of problems, and out of respect for the fifth tradition, that's why I need to talk about that stuff. You know, I went with the territory. And my life was a mess, you know. It was a mess. I was sitting home for work one day. I'm reading the Daily News, and there's an article in the paper, and at the bottom of the paper, there's a couple of questions, five, six questions. It said alcohol problems, drug problems, depression, uh, thoughts of suicide, and marital problems. I was four out of five because I was single. But I'm sure if, <laughs> I'm sure if I were married, I'd been batting a thousand. But, you know, and I, I cut that ad out, and I stuck it in my wallet, and I continued on drinking, you know. It was Memorial Day weekend, uh, 1988. I'm sitting in a bar. Guys, are, uh, guys I work with, uh, we're in trouble. And uh, so we're there to get our stories together, you know. And one of the guys I was with decided that he wanted to go home. He needed to leave for some reason. So I figured I'd give him a ride home because I did not think that, you know, I didn't think that I was as drunk as he was. He thought that was a pretty good idea. I'm a show-off, always been a show-off. So I'm going to show off my driving skills to this guy. I, I saw things on television and movies. I would try to do that stuff myself. I now know... They, things are all pre-designed, and, but I didn't know that then. So, but, and it wasn't my car anyway. It was a city car, so I didn't care. So I was going to show off my driving skills to this guy. And I tell you, I wrecked a lot of cars, and the same thing. I mean, I told these Whopper stories, man, and uh, they knew that I was lying, but you never fess up, man. You deny it to the end, you know. So I'm driving up the street, and uh, I see a kid riding towards me on a bicycle. He's a couple blocks away. And coming out Poplar Street, a one-way street, and up on my left-hand side is a big stone wall. And for some reason, I thought it'd be funny to, to see this kid jump the curb and grab the wall. I don't know why. I just thought that'd be funny. So I, I'm playing chicken with this kid, and unfortunately, at the last second, we turned in the same direction. I ran this kid over. As he lied, bleeding on the hood of my car, I got out of my car on my nightstick. I was going to beat this kid with my nightstick because I thought he was going to milk me in the city for an insurance claim. The guy that I was with prevented me from doing that. I took this kid off the hood of my car, threw him off the side of the street like a piece of trash. I pulled this crumpled bicycle from underneath my car, threw that off the side of the street like a piece of trash. I drove back to the bar, made some sort of smart-out remark, and I continued on drinking. When I came to the next day, I realized I was in serious, serious trouble, but I didn't think anybody helped me because I was such a creep. I didn't know what to do. So what I did do, I got a bottle of liquor, a case of beer, and some other substances, and I checked into a hotel with the, content, with the intention to consume all this stuff to build up the courage of my life. And three days later, they're knocking on the hotel door to kick me out. At this point, I'm suspended from my job, so I no longer had access to a weapon, so I couldn't shoot myself. So I walked over to the window. I opened up the window, and I was going to jump out the window. I was going to have, that's how I was going to end my life. When I opened up the window, I remember I was on the fifth floor, and I remembered I was scared of heights. I made 23 jumps in the service. I never overcame my fear of heights. So I went in the bathroom, and I filled the bathtub up with water, and I had a blow dryer, and I was going to pull the blow dryer in the tub and make it appear an accidental electrocution. But every time I'd pull the blow dryer into the tub, it would come unplugged. I was about a foot and a half short on cord, and I got one foot in the tub, and I'm leaning, trying to plug it in. Like, and I, it's like that scene of a Woody Allen movie where he couldn't even kill himself, you know? And it's just nuts. And it's okay to laugh, but I don't want to forget the pain I was in because it would turn out to be that was the last day that I had a drink. I didn't know that, though. I didn't know what to do. 
So the only thing that I had left, the only weapon I had left was my car. So I took one last, one last spin through my neighborhood. I started up the Falls Bridge. I come down the East River Drive, and I decided I was going to end my life in an automobile accident. And the East is a very winding road along the Schuylkill River. And I, I, I was going to take myself out in a head-on collision. And I handled enough jobs like this. I know if you did that, that'd do the trick, you know. And I'm coming down the drive, and the speed limit's probably about 20, 25. I'm doing about 50. It's like a weekday. It's like a Wednesday, Thursday. It's like 10:30, 11 o'clock in the morning. And that would be important because if it were any other time of day, I'd have probably succeeded in what I set out to do. And you know what? Uh, I'm cooked. I'm hungover. I'm crying. And uh, I was always haunted by something. I, when I was a, a young, I was about 20, 22, 23. I only had about a year or two, a couple of years on the job. I had to do a notification. I, had to, I knocked on this guy's door and I had told him about his kid getting killed in an automobile accident. And for me, this guy, he was an older guy. He had to be in his probably late 30s, early 40s. I was always haunted by this guy. I don't know why. It was the furthest thing. It's not even the worst of things I've ever seen. But this guy aged like right in front of me. I, I remember I saw him a few weeks later, man. He, I just, I, I actually passed by him. I didn't know he stopped me. We started talking. I didn't even recognize the guy because he just like lost a life. You know, I just didn't have it in his eye anymore. As whacked as I was and as much pain as I was in, I now know it was my God. Did not know that then. But I knew that I could not inflict this type of damage, damage on an innocent family. I just couldn't do that. But I still needed to end my pain, so I, I knew I would wrap myself around one of these big old trees I got on the drive because I handle jobs like that. That usually does the trick. I mean, you usually get you know, evicted, you know, uh, ejected through the, uh, out, out of the car. You get run over. You get thrown through the windshield. Those, those jobs, they're usually pretty good. So, but I just started losing it. I just started crying. And I pulled over at the end of uh, East River Drive, which is Boathouse Row. And I sit behind the wheel of my car and I cry like a baby. And I reach into my glove box where I always had a second gun. It wasn't there. But my wallet was there. And inside that wallet was that article that I clipped out of Daily News about, about six weeks prior. And it's no longer there, but at the end of the last boathouse, one of those old glass and clothes phone booths. And I walked over and I dialed that phone number up. And the woman who answered the phone, I spoke to this woman like I spoke to no one in my life before. I told her the truth. I told her everything that was going on in my life. And she listened patiently, God bless her. And she said, listen, why don't you drive over to Hahnemann Hospital? Somebody be waiting to talk to you. And I drove over to Hahnemann. That's about a five-minute ride. And they were waiting for me. And they made it to the 10th floor of their psychiatric unit. And I spent about three or four days there. It got me kind of stabilized. And from there, I got transferred to the VA hospital out in West Philadelphia, 38th and Woodland. And I spent about six weeks in their flight deck. And from there, I got transferred to the VA hospital out in Coatesville, where I spent another few more, a few more weeks in their flight deck before I got put into an alcohol and drug ward. When I pulled over that day and made that phone call, Alcohol Synonymous was the furthest thing from my mind. I didn't think I had a problem with alcohol. I was a beer drinker. I thought if I left my, I really thought my big problem was this short use of other substances. If I left that crap alone, I'd be okay. Maybe I got this mental illness. I heard this from my mother. Maybe I got this stress stuff they're talking about. I got this experience in the job. I got this experience in the service. Maybe it's the neighborhood I live in. Maybe it's the fact I'm a mummer. But it can't be alcohol because I'm a beer drinker and there's no way that you could be an alcoholic drinking beer, you know? I'm in the VA, the drug and alcohol ward. I'm there for about three or four hours and I get the, the arrogance comes in and I have to get the lay to land. And I wander into the day room. And in the day room, up on the large window, on the walls of the day room, they had the large window shades of the 12 steps and the 12 traditions. And I zipped through the steps. I had about six of them done. I saw the amends. I said, they're screwed. That doesn't apply to me. But what later happened that night, two men would come up. They were, I would later find out that they were part of the treatment facility committee. I did not know that then. And the moment that the speaker said something in his background that I did not identify with, I could not relate to, I just plain didn't like, I'd immediately tune him out. I was too busy to listen to the messenger and not the message. 
Now I'm looking around my peers and I realize, you know what, I'm not as bad as these guys. A lot of these guys, you know, they got kids who hate them, uh, wives, they, you know, they got PFAs, they can't go near the family, they can't do any of that stuff. I don't have that problem. Probably due to the fact that I've never been married and had any kids. I had something to do with that. A lot of these guys had employment problems, you know, couldn't maintain it. I would, that wasn't my deal. I went from high school to the Air Force to the Police Department, the only job I ever had. I said, that wasn't my problem. I was looking for the differences and not the similarities. But what bothered me the most, without any question, was at the end of the meeting, everyone got in a circle and held hands and said the Lord's Prayer. If this is what you people are about, I don't want nothing to do with you. Because I hated God. And I know they're strong words. And you know what? That doesn't even begin to sum up the feeling I hated, hated God. And uh, there was a couple of different reasons I hated God. And believe me, they were all legitimate. One of, the most, one of the biggest reasons was, I talk about my mom's mental illness. My mom was like a fundamentalist with the church, you know. She was in the charismatic moment. She thought she could speak in tongues, and there were candles and pictures and all that other stuff throughout the house. And at the end of the, the meeting, everyone got in a circle and said the Lord's Prayer. Well, I was 15 years old. I came home from school one day, and I was in the house about 10 minutes. So I came across my mother, and I found my mother. She had slit her wrist. And I remember she looked up at me. She's helped me, Bobby. And I looked down, and I said, good for you. I walked out of the house. I got an older guy to go to the state store and get a bottle of wine. I got the wine. I drank the wine. And I came home later that night, my father told me what had happened. I acted surprised. I said, oh, yeah, how about that? So that happened when I was 15. I got sober when I was 27. That's 12 years of hating God. That's a real good hate. And that would be a couple more years before I would even address this issue, you know. At the end of the, when I was about to leave, I'm about to say this, please, it's not to get a laugh. A nurse came up to me. She had to be a member of Al-Anon. She was just a beautiful lady. And she saw all through my BS because that's all it was. It was just like to keep people uh, as a facade, to keep them at arm's length away from me. She said, the only way you're going to make it, you're going to need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I needed to tell you that's the best piece of advice I got. And that's where I would get my recovery. I got it in AA. I did not get it at the VA hospital. The VA hospital helped me tremendously. But I would get my recovery in AA. And I go to AA every single day. I don't drink coffee. I never have, so I don't make it. Uh, I don't smoke cigarettes. I've never had in my life, so I don't empty any ashtrays. If I walked into a big book meeting or step meeting and that was strictly by accident, I would leave it to break out something more important to do. Traditions. Nah, rules. In my line of work, we love to enforce them. We don't like to follow them. They're for other people. But I was interested. I went to meetings. And I was interested in war stories. And the moment that the speaker said something about his background that I did not like, could not identify with, or just, I would just tune him out. Too busy listening to the messenger, not the message. But I made meetings. And I was crazy as a bed bug. I was just nuts. I did everything wrong. You could do an alcohol phenomenon. The only thing I didn't do, I didn't pick up a drink. I was a liar, thief, and a cheat, stone cold sober. I was a creep with a new woman. I was 23 months sober, and I beat another man with a baseball bat. Forget what step I was working that day. I was, <laughs> you know, I was not. You know, I didn't have a sponsor uh, because I'm a bright guy, and no one could help me. You know, I hated everybody. My early recovery, in my first couple years, I go to, I used to go to a lot of gentlemen's clubs, right? I would get my picture taken. I would get my picture taken with the entertainer, and I would come to the meeting and pass the picture around to the old timer because I figured they would like that. They would look at the picture, they would look at me, and they would shake their head and say, "Please, kid, please keep coming back." You know, I was. I had no idea who John Barleycorn was. I was wondering why everybody was blowing this guy's anonymity. I said, "He must be. He's really tough SOB. I want to tangle with him." Uh, when I found out who John Barleycorn was, I felt so stupid. Here I was, I so damn bright, damn near killed me. My home group, we had a cork board, first name, last initial. Joey A, three years. Bobby C, two years. Joey A went out. I said, good for him. I move up. This is about time. Everyone's talking about not the sobriety. That's all I cared about. I don't care if people went out. I was, I was nuts. I swear to God, I was nuts. The only time I got, the hand, got my hand up to share was to take a shot at somebody. Or, God forbid, the meeting was too serene, which scared the hell out of me. I would have to put my insanity on the table and then watch the meeting go off. And I sit back and watch the show. 
my second anniversary came, I didn't celebrate it. One month after my second anniversary, I went to eat my gun. The same pathetic feeling I had 25 months before, but 25 months before, I'm loaded with drugs and alcohol. Here I am, stone-cold sober in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, went to eat my gun. Safe to assume my life was unmanageable. There was a guy from my neighborhood. His name was Troubles. Troubles was a hard-earned nickname he had. In and out of jail in the 60s and 70s. I went to him. I saw him at the step meeting, Wissanoming step meeting on a Friday night. I went up to him. I, went, I said, Bobby, I need some help. He said, Bobby, I've been watching you these past couple years. I'm sticking my chest out. I think he likes me. He says, Bobby, I need to tell you, you're full of shit. That's not the response I'm looking for. He said, I'm going to be your sponsor under certain conditions. You're going to call me every single day. You're going to go to a big book meeting a week. You're going to go to a men's meeting a week. You're going to go to a step meeting. You're going to get yourself a coffee commitment. You're going to leave them damn women alone. And I say to myself, who's he talking to? I'm sober 25 months. I'm selling the grapevines. I got it going on here. That was a good pitch for the grapevines, by the way. You know? <laughs> that was my first service job, grapevine rep. I got it going on here. So what I did do, I, I didn't say that. What I did do, I looked him dead in the eye and said, I'm willing to do that. And that's the night that I took the first three steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew I was powerless over alcohol. And you know what? As much as I hated God, I knew God was working. Because you know why? Because I saw these people coming in behind me. I saw them getting better before my uh, eyes. You know? And that, you know, and so the third step, I got on my knees, you know, and made a commitment to do the rest of the steps. And that's what happened. I wound up getting better. You know, things around me may not always, but I got better, you know. Uh, I, I only have a half a minute left. I, I wish I could tell you more about recovery, but the recovery is laid out in the big book. I don't think the big book should be used as a weapon, but the directions to do to get sober are in the big book. I believe you ought to have a sponsor, and your sponsor ought to do the steps. If your sponsor has not done the steps, he or she has no business sponsoring you. Since I grew up in a blue-collar ethnic neighborhood, I always use the, uh, the analogy of the building trades. If you're a building trade, if you're a brand-new guy, uh, you're an apprentice, you hook up with a journeyman. And the journeyman, you go to school one day a week and you work, and then you become a journeyman. And that's what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're new, you're the apprentice, get yourself with a sponsor who's a journeyman, and they'll walk you through it. It's a wonderful way of life. And uh, sorry, out of, uh, I'm out of time, and, but I thank you for the privilege of participating. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.